Father, let us praise you this morning in song and psalms and spiritual songs, Father, and let us also hear from your word this morning, the blessed oracles of God. Be with your servant, O Lord, by the Holy Spirit as I preach and pray over this congregation. Bless us yet again. Amen. You may open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Been quite a few weeks now we've been in the book of Romans. It is packed with teaching and doctrine, all for our edification, so that we might grow in knowledge and grace in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to refer you this morning to Romans chapter 7, and I will read again for you this morning the first six verses. And so Paul writes to the brethren in Rome, Or do you not know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released. She's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that she's no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death." But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. O Father, may your presence be added to this, the proclamation of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last week, you know that the Apostle Paul was not attempting here to teach on marriage. He thought you already knew well about the rules of marriage, so he stated them plainly there, and he made uh, a comparison to the relationship you now have in Christ because you died to the law, and you, you experienced a spiritual death. The Bible says you were crucified with Christ by faith, and so now you have this new relationship. You're married to a new husband, and such is the church. That's why we're called the Bride of Christ. And so Paul writes, and I'll focus primarily on this verse, on verse 4 this morning. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, I labored over this quite a bit last week. And we went over some of the meanings of the words brethren, we said meant all the brethren, right? Not just the Jewish brethren that were present there, it meant the Gentile brethren. Remember, we're in a great pagan city, we're in Rome, very, the biggest city in the ancient world, Ephesus was number two. So we had all these metropolitan interests, people from all over the world came here and got saved. And it could have well been a megachurch. 
So he's speaking to the brethren here. He's talking about the law. And specifically, I pressed last week that this was not the law of Moses only, but the universal laws that all men are under in their perspective countries and nation states. And so we also talked about dominion, being under the authority of someone. And so we spoke at length about these things last week, about this comparison of our new life in Christ to being married to a new husband. The old marriage has expired by the old biblical way in which marriage, the only biblical way in which marriages do expire. A death has occurred. Till death do us part. We've all said it, right? Some of us meant it. Till death do us part. The death of one of the partners. In our case, it is us who died. Friends, the law is still alive. I'm going to press that a bit this morning, too. Um, we died, thus ending our marriage to the law. So it's no longer our marriage, our, our spouse, but it's still out there, right? We spoke of the law last week as a good and caring guide, but as having no power to redeem us. The law had a good purpose. We're not to think poorly of the law. The law is a great and holy thing, which I'll also press a bit that again this morning. We spoke of the law as a good and caring guide, but as having no power to redeem. We spoke of the law as useful, more useful to condemn than to redeem. But the law, friends, is a worthy teacher. The law of God is a loyal guide. We must not look upon the law of God as an evil thing, for it is said to be a good, even a holy thing, even in this epistle. Paul will speak later in the epistle. He'll say, therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. He's not saying the law is bad. He's saying the law is a good guide, but a poor redeemer. Do we then make void the law through faith? He says, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Where have you heard that language before? Jesus said that very thing in the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to. So Paul's whole point in the message is to assure the believer that we need not fear the old husband. He can't get us. We have a new husband. We're dead to the old one. That relationship with the law is dead. Your salvation is therefore legal. It was done lawfully. The sacrifice was made in your behalf. The wages of sin is death, and it was paid on your behalf, you see. All of this is what he's taught thus far in the epistle. Notice, however, that Paul never speaks ill of the law, but only good. The law was a, you've heard it said this way, it was a yoke. You know what a yoke is? It was a yoke. It ties two animals together. It was a yoke hard to bear. The law was a bondage, the Bible tells us. But you were bought by another. You were bought at a price. There was a price paid for you, and the Lord God in heaven accepted that currency, and that currency was the death of his son. Or we like to say, the blood of Christ. So the law was hard to bear. It was a bondage. Did the law dissolve when you got saved, though? It did not dissolve, but rather it became a delight. And I hope I can press this with you this morning to the point where we come to an understanding of this relationship. The law is, it became a delight to follow the law. As one man asked for prayer this morning, it's a law of God. It's part of the moral law that we keep the Lord's day holy, that we keep it separate, not like the other days. 
and that we're here. And we can say, well, I'm not under the law, but we're still here. We're here because it's a delight to us to be here. It's a privilege. The law is a trusted guide. It's a sympathetic parent. The law is said to have been a good and righteous guide to the saints, for it's the law that points us to the righteousness of Christ. Friends, Christ is not under the law, but he's righteous. Friends, you are not under the law, but yet you're righteous because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. Paul wrote of this to the Galatians. This is how he described the law. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. We were kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. And so the apostle has been very effective in making his comparisons to uh, real-life things uh, concerning our new relationship with Christ, in this case, real-life comparisons to our real-life marriages. And in the case of Romans 7, it's the marriage bond that he appeals to. To make his case, and I'd like to give another illustration to try to make our position plain. Consider a child. We all, most of us have children or have had them and have grandchildren. Consider a child. Consider all the things that make up a child and what they're like. A child has to be instructed. But he has to be instructed in things long before he knows the reason why he's being instructed. Now, I haven't taught on parenting for a long time. That used to be a big thing. The church used to be filled with our kids, but they're all grown up and big now. And they've all benefited from that biblical instruction. So a child has to be instructed in things that he has no knowledge of why he's being instructed. Why can't I run over there into the parking lot? The child just has to know that he can't, meaning he has to understand authority before he reasons why that authority is in place and that it's for his good. Follow me so far. So a child's instructed in a lot of rules and laws even before he's able to understand them, even before he's able to discern their usefulness. Did your father ever say to you, because I said so? That is a good and righteous and lawful stance for a father. All the kids are going, yeah, he's sitting right here. Because I said so. You know, I was watching, you ever... See the old uh, TV series, MASH? There was a guy on there named Colonel Potter. Remember? And Colonel Potter was, well, a colonel. And he had these other officers under him that didn't like following rules or anything. But he gave an order one day. And they were asking him questions about the order. And Colonel Potter said something that I said, I can use that. He said, when they make you a colonel, they take the bone out of your head that makes you explain orders. Now do it. I'm the colonel. You're not. Right? Fathers, that is your place. It's your God-given right. Do not feel bad for the child when you discipline him. Feel good. You're obeying God for his benefit, and he will love you for it. I have three sons. Two of them are here. The black sheep is left. Just kidding. (laughs) He's probably watching. But my sons, last I checked, still love me. I have always disciplined my son. I, my sons. I was quite a disciplinarian. All right? The discipline of a father is the warm embrace of love. It is the corralling 
of a child to do the right thing. The child does not hate the authorities that God put in his life. Parents are so perfectly suited to discipline children. That's why God made it that way. And that's why we fight the idea that the government is their parent, right? Or that some other agency is the parent. No, we're the parent of the child. And God suited it that way. Because I've always said to people, if, people, if you're going to discipline a child, make sure he knows you love him first, and then he'll take the discipline from you in a righteous manner. So God says, because I said so. My father said it. I said it. It's such a good phrase. And someday I'll explain to you why I said so, but for now, I said so. Nothing wrong with that. That's holy before God. God says, I am the Lord. Use it to the glory of God. Now, I spoke on part of the verse last week that speaks of bearing fruit to God. And I pointed out that the greatest fruit a married couple yields to God is the faith of their children. And I read the commentaries of Lloyd-Jones, of Martin Lloyd-Jones, as I usually do, and he made the very same point. And so I went around the room last week, and I pointed out the godly young people that are the fruit of God's law. And you're all here today. You are the fruit of your parents following the law of God for your lives. We're not even talking about grace. (laughs) The grace that God gave you is that he gave you godly parents. And so I went around the room, and I pointed people out by name, Um, And I pointed out that first, these young Christians, people who have their their own personal testimony before God of their love for Christ, these young people, before they honored God, they honored their parents in God's place. The parent was the first voice of God in their lives. First they honored them under the law, and now they honor us under grace. I hope I can bridge for you today this important distinction, so here's my illustration. The child in our example loves to do what kids do. Let's just say something simple. He loves to eat sweets, which is a fine thing. I think it's great. Eat some sweets in your life. But he's unable to understand that too many of a good thing is not good. The child can't figure that out. He won't know that until he's throwing it up. And so before it's in his capacity, before he's had the experience of becoming sick from overeating, he must adhere to certain rules and limits with regard to which foods he must eat. Someone else has to tell him. A friend of mine once preached, in fact it was John's brother, Mike, many years ago, he used to do a, a, what we called a, a pre-sermon or a sermon to the children. Remember those days? And he did Proverbs for the day for the kids, Right? And one day Mike said something, and I've quoted him ever since. He said, stop learning from your mistakes so often. We learn from our mistakes, friend, but that isn't, you know, they say, oh, experience is the best teacher. No, it's not. Learning the rules is the best teacher. Watching other people learn from their mistakes is the best teacher. Don't you do it. Billy read a whole chapter on that this morning. Let worldly kids learn from their mistakes. You learn from what your parents taught you are godly rules. And when you learn from your mistakes, you'll really know those lessons. When you put your hand on the hot stove, you'll know why you weren't supposed to. But that isn't the best way to learn that. Learn about BTUs first. In science. In the homeschooling class of your mother. 
We taught those things. So the child likes to eat sweets, but he has to learn when to stop. He has to learn certain things. And so when he's older, and when he's had more experience, and when his tastes and his wisdom increase to his own good, he no longer needs external rules to manage his diet. The kid doesn't need his mother to tell him, don't eat that, you'll ruin your supper. He knows that. But he's a man now, and guess what? I tell my boys, you want to ruin your supper, you ruin your supper. It's cheaper for me. I'd rather eat the cookies than the steak. But you're not under the law anymore. By the way, a little side note, I never made my kids eat. I know you all think it's a big thing, you've got to make them eat because kids are starving in China. That's what our parents used to tell us. Eat that. Someone's starving in China. I never could understand. If I don't eat it, will we send it to China? I, I never understood why we did that. That was a Depression-era thinking. I just said, hon, if they want cereal, let them eat cereal. Eventually, they'll want to eat meat, and it'll just be too expensive. And now look at it with inflation. It's crazy. And so the child has to learn about quantity. He has to learn about quality. He has to learn self-control, friends, moderation. That's also called what? The fruit of the Spirit. And it was the law of his parents that taught him these things. But now he's a law to himself. The child is a law to himself. He doesn't hate the parent for guiding him and, pro and protecting him to bring him to that stage. He doesn't hate the parent for spanking him. You know, we're such a sentimental society today. My father used to spank us and bat us around, and he never cared about our feelings. He just, he just never, Tom's laughing. I mean, they didn't get, oh, honey, are you okay? They, I mean, nobody ever said that to me when I was a kid. We survived. I don't hate the man. I love the man. He's been gone for 34 years. But, um, so I think we've done a little better as parents today, right? Um, but we don't hate the parent for guiding us. In fact, we love the parent. He was a good guide. And he loves the things, we love the things that the parent loves. Our parents taught us to love the things they love, primarily Jesus Christ. He sees the need for their rules and their laws, and he'll do it with their kids. You know, I used to go, I'd be in the store. You ever be in the store, and you see, you know, and you're with your wife, and, and you're with your kids, and you see another parent, and the kid's totally acting up, and they'll be like, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Nothing ever changes. It's just stop it. Stop it. Friends, let me tell you, when I said stop it, they stopped it because they knew something else was coming. You know what I mean? Now, I want to say, spanking your kids is a godly thing. I don't make a big thing about this. All the Christians are beating their children. It's not about that. It's about if you will discipline your child and make it and punctuate it properly, right, you'll hardly ever have to do it. They have to know that discipline is out there, that the father's the authority, that he says, because I said so. They took the bone out of his head that makes him explain orders because he's the law of your life right now. That's how it works. And it's such a good system. So when you're in the store and you see the kid acting up, that kid hasn't learned that there's any consequence for anything. He knows nothing about authority. Parenting is not about shepherding the child's heart, friends. I know there was a best-selling book to that effect. Some people have asked me for the book. I don't want to give you that book. It misses the point. It's about respect for authority first. Then you can explain to the child. I told my children back then, um, I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to say, you can, you're, not, you're not allowed to argue with your father. That's another thing. Don't argue with your children. They have no say. 
Don't argue with them. I told my boys, in fact, one of my boys signed a covenant with me that he would do whatever I say until I let him off free from the covenant. What he didn't know is I was going to let him off way sooner than he thought. But that's because he was smart and he learned some things. And I said, at some point, I'm going to let you off the covenant and I'm going to let you argue with me about my rulings. I said, but even if you win the argument, I'm still the authority until I say so. But I'll I'll let you have a say. It's understanding authority, friends. It comes from the top down. We're not our child's best friend, and we never will be if they're not disciplined. Right? I know grandparents that don't like their grandchildren. They just have no respect. They've never learned those kinds of lessons. The Christian parent has to teach this fruit to holiness. That child is his presentation to God of a job well done. He gave you stewardship over those beautiful little souls. And so now he's a law to himself. And he doesn't need the rules anymore. Why? They're engraved on his heart and somewhere else. He's wise to see that the rules were good for him and that it was the right rules, that is the law, that made him what he is. The child no longer needs the ritual of being corrected, of being punished for disobedience. Friends, I'm 66 years old. My oldest son is 34. My youngest is, what, 25 or so? And they still call me up to ask my advice. They know they got good teaching, good advice. And so do your children know that. And your children will know that. They don't have to do, take my advice if they don't want to. But you ought to be a good source for that. But he doesn't need to follow my law anymore. It's not that he sees himself free to do as he pleases, but rather he has learned to delight in the law of his parents, the law of his mother. He learned to love the correction of his father. And he'll pass down these good and righteous rules to his children as well. You know, we might be the only society left on earth that glorifies youth. Every commercial on TV is about helping you to look younger, even though you might feel terrible. Remember? Doesn't matter how you feel. No, it doesn't matter how you feel so long as you look marvelous. Uh. We're the only society on earth that glorifies youth. Other societies, Chinese society, American, Native American society, they glorify age. Biblical society, the hoary head, it means the white hair, is a crown of wisdom, right? So you older ladies, when someone asks how old you are, just tell them. Don't tell them how rude they are to ask. Maybe it's rude. But you should be glad that you made it to that old. I used to say that to my friend Gwen, who lived to be 100, and I delivered her eulogy last year at this time. Gwen would just tell you her age. She was proud to be. She didn't like this new generational thing where the kids were sort of in charge of everything, you know? So bear fruit to righteousness. The child no longer needs the law, but he's learned to delight in the law of his mother and to love the correction of his father. And he'll pass down these good and righteous things to his his children. And all of these things are the fruit to holiness of which the apostle speaks. Verses 5 and 6 say, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Imagine that. You used to bear fruit to death. That's what the unsaved person does. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Friends, the law isn't dead, but we've got a new relationship toward it. 
Now, Paul spent a lot of ink comparing the law to a first husband. But due to our death, because we died with Christ on the cross by faith in him, Romans 6, 8 says that, we're free from the law of our old husband. We're free from his dominion. Yet the desire for the inherent righteousness of the law is still bound up in the person of Christ. Friends, the only reason Christ could fulfill the law for you is because he was righteous. In him was contained the righteousness of the law. So you des- your desire is for that inherent righteousness. Remember Jesus' words when he said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law is still with us. It still has a purpose. It still exemplifies righteousness, you see. But it's bound up in our liberty in Christ. And so we really have the best of both worlds. We have the liberty that comes with our marriage to Christ, and we have the righteousness was taught us by the holiness of the law. And so Paul writes elsewhere to the saints. He said, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the law is. Friends, understanding is part of growing in holiness, seeking out. Ignorance of the law, you've heard it, is no excuse. Where were you when it was preached from the pulpit? Where were you that day when we taught about the law? Paul taught this to the Ephesians. Whenever you quote from Ephesians, you can go on and on. It's so full of potent teaching. He said to the saints, No longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Friends, have you ever heard people make light of faith as though it makes you stupid or something? Faith increases mental acuity. It makes you smarter. It makes you desire to be smarter. It makes you seek out things that are acceptable to the Lord and learn them, not be ignorant of them or blind to them, as he says here. And so he goes on. No longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk being past feeling, having given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you've not so learned Christ. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul is concerned with our minds. He's concerned with our learning. He's concerned that we not be ignorant about the rules of righteousness. And where do we find them? They're contained in the law of God. Most specifically, the Ten Commandments, which we call the moral law of God. No, we don't still follow ceremonial law where we sacrifice animals. That's all been fulfilled. But we still have the moral law of God. And put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he gets specific. And what does he point to? He points to the Ten Commandments. He says, therefore, put away lying. Friends, that's one of the commandments, right? 
He says, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So stop lying. Friends, when does a liar, Jay Adams asked this question, when does a liar, someone, you ever have someone in your life that you almost expect to lie to you? I've had some people like that. With anything they say, I have to, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. What was that song, that, that girl had that song? I know you're lying because your lips are moving. Something like that. <laughs> what happened to her? <laughs> uh, but I mean, I know people like that. I know you're lying because your lips are moving. When does a liar become not a liar? When does a, you know, a, a perpetual, continual liar become not a liar? Well, he hasn't said anything today, so I guess he, he didn't lie today at least. He hasn't said anything. Jay Adams says, no, you're not a a liar just because you stopped lying for a few minutes or a few hours. You're a liar. You stop being a liar when you begin to speak truth. See, the Christian has to have fruit from holiness, repentance. Friends, forgiveness is the, the barest part of your salvation, the forgiveness part. You have to go on for there, from there. If God wanted you to just be forgiven, he'd have taken you home when he saved you. But he wants you to be here to bear fruit. And so Paul goes on. Let him who stole steal no longer. Jay Adams asked, when does a thief cease to become a thief? Well, Paul tells you. Rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. In other words, the thief stops being a thief, not just because he didn't steal today, because he worked today, and rather than take something he didn't earn, he gave something of his to some, someone that they didn't earn. He turned it completely around. He bore fruit to holiness, you see. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Friends, we don't talk about grieving the Holy Spirit very often, and we should. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we continue to claim Christ and to live in sin without repentant hearts. We shouldn't be those who need the law to command us, to warn us, to frighten us to do good or else. Rather, we delight to do those things written in the law. We delight that we're free to do those things that please our new marriage partner. Husbands delight in that you love your wives as yourselves. Wives, be joyful in submission and seek to please your husband. These are all the lessons from Ephesians. And then he writes, right to children, he says, children, delight in honoring your parents. He goes, he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the law. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Because it is right. That's another way of saying, because I said so. I said so a long time ago. It's right to obey your parents. That's why. Well, why do I have to do what I'm told? Because it's right. And it's the first commandment with promise, he says. Then he quotes again from from the Old Testament, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Friends, the saint delights in coming to service, to worship God. We owe him worship. I'm going to tell you, I don't know a lot about what goes on in heaven. I've heard a lot of things. I've read some books and some of them seem pretty silly to me, but I, know, I don't know what goes on in heaven. I don't know if we have jobs if we go to sleep and get up in the morning or need alarm clocks or I don't know what we do. I don't know if we need coffee anymore. Maybe we just get to smell it. I mean, who doesn't like to smell coffee? I don't know. Maybe everything's just better like that. So I don't know. Do we work? We don't have marriage. We know that. There's no more marriage. 
you know? Nobody's getting spanked in heaven. Everything's all perfect, right? You know, I picture the highway department in heaven with the truck going down the, the golden road, and a couple of guys hop off and take a, a block of gold and put it in the pothole, and they move on. I mean, I don't know. It gets, it gets, pretty, it gets pretty silly, and they tamp down the gold you know, like they would the blacktop back here in the sinful world, right? But one thing we do in heaven, we worship God. Friends, we worship God now. We worship him in heaven. Perfect your worship now. I have to get into this a bit for today. Delight in coming to service to worship him. Delight in being on time for worship. Think about it. Being on time. You know, read the book. This is your assignment for tonight, all right? You got to read Malachi the last book of the Old Testament. He's trying to bring everyone back to where we're supposed to be just to be basically good believers, right? He's telling the priests, stop preaching that bad stuff, preach good stuff. He's telling people who don't give to God, bring all the tithe into the storehouse. He's telling people who don't honor their wives to honor them because God hates divorce, he tells them. It's four little chapters. I read it this morning. Go in, that's your homework for tonight. Read Malachi. Delight in these things. Worship and prayer throughout the scriptures are always spoken of as prescribed times. We speak of the hour of prayer. Don't we have a song? Sweet hour of prayer. From the book of Acts we read, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple to pray at the hour, at the, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They had a precise hour and they had to go. Have, uh, has anyone ever seen the, the play uh, Fiddler on the Roof? My favorite play. I'm not a big musical guy, but I love this one, right? I've seen it. There's a movie. You can see the movie. Wow, we saw it with the kids on Broadway. We had front row seats. Karen's sister got us front row seats. We were getting spit on. That's what they say. That's supposed to be a good thing when you're on Broadway. You're getting spit on by the actors. You're so close. But um, at the very beginning, the lead character, Reb Tevye, he's a wonderful Jewish you know, man of God, a very devout man. And he's the milkman in the town. And he's pulling his cart, his milk cart. And he's pulling his cart because his horse died, right? And he's talking and he's giving his monologues and he gets this funny dialogue that he, that he has. And then he realizes he has to get home. He has to rush home. And he grabs the, the cart and he starts running home. It's almost the Sabbath. It's almost the Sabbath. He can't be late for the Sabbath. And so he gets home, and he gets in his house, and they throw out the prayer cloth, and he puts his yarmulke on, and his prayer shawl, and his wife sits there, and all his daughters, he has five daughters, oh, you gave me five daughters, you know. And uh, so Rev Tevye has to be there before twilight, because that's when worship starts. He has to rush home and be on time. He doesn't dare be late for the worship. Appointed times are not artificial human constructs. They're divine constructs. Why do you suppose the Jewish Sabbath began at dusk? It was appointed. Why is it that the Passover began at a specific time? Listen to this. Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. Numbers 9, 2, and 3. And so when the child of God asks why at twilight, the answer comes from the Lord. Because I said so. I am the Lord. You know, I had a a good friend, and she was perpetually late for everything, not on time for, for anything, right? And she said, well, it's not my gift. I'm not organized. And I had to say as her pastor, what makes you think that's not sin? 
It's okay to be disorganized. It's not okay. Bear fruit to holiness. Clean that up. We can do better. Doing right for the saint should cease to be a burden. That's why you have habits. Jay Adams again. He says, if you can do anything for 40 days and 40 nights, it's yours. It's your habit. Do anything for six weeks, and it's your habit. You can do it. You own it. Right? So stop brushing your teeth every day for 40 days. To the psalmist, it's become his delight. Sunday worship is the privilege of those who love God. It's not a burden. It's the high point of the week. If it's not so in your life, it's because you still see it as a burden of the law and not the liberty that the love of Christ provides. Either you misunderstand your position as a Christian in relation to Christ and the law, or you've not yet died and been born again by faith. Which is it? Ask ourselves this morning. Is worshiping God a delight? That is the one thing he saved us for perpetually is to worship him because he's worthy of worship. Why is worship with the saints not a priority? Is it drudgery? Is it an imposition that takes up too much time in your Sunday? You know, I came through a couple of doors to get where I am in Christianity. I was a Catholic. A lot of you are Catholic. We talk all the time. I left the Catholic Church because I studied the Bible and I found there wasn't enough doctrine that comported with what I was actually reading. But there were some things that we could take with us from that experience. I remember in the Catholic Church, it was very reverent, right? There was reverence. People took worship seriously in that sense, in the aesthetic sense at least, right? I remember being a a little kid, six years old. I was so bored. I was so bored, it was like making me sick. I could have burst out of myself. And... um, and then everyone would stand up. Remember in the Catholic Church, everyone stood up and you were this tall? What are you looking at? I remember that. A forest of backsides. And I'm supposed to just take it. You know what my father used to do? In the winter, when we acted up in church, he took us out. We were in one of those old stone churches in the east side of Brockton that had like 12 steps up to a landing. He took us off and he threw us over the landing into the snow pile and went back in the church. <laughs> See why I'm like this? <laughs> my, my mother would say, Joe, where are the kids? <laughs> I dealt with them. No, but you, you learned something about reverence. You know, you could take that with you. There was a sort of quiet reverence about it um, that we could learn from. And so to the psalmist, these things become a delight Sunday worship becomes not a drudgery, but a privilege. And where do you suppose the child of God will be held accountable for his decisions and his lifestyles? It's in the assembly. This is where you'll be held lovingly accountable, right? It's like the parent. Where are you really going to learn the essential lessons of life? From your parents. Where are the parents going to learn it? From the Word of God on Sunday mornings. Preaching will never go out of style uh, for the Christian for the true Christian. It is God's way. It is the power of God to salvation. And so Paul wrote about this. Where do, you, where do you receive your oversight as a Christian? Paul said, brethren, if a man's overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Oh, I've been wrong. I think I'll go down to the bar and get some accountability. No, you get it in the church. 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then he said, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. To the Hebrews he wrote, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as one who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. When the pastor rebukes, friends, what pastor wants to rebuke? You know, I'd rather, I always say I'm better at making jokes than making rules, but there are certain rules and we should tighten them up. And this scripture is calling us to fruit to holiness. We can do better than we do. And you know, what did Paul say to Timothy? Preach the word in season, out of season, whether it's convenient or inconvenient. And then he said, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Friends, rebuking is from a loving pastor to a heart in need of correction. That's what it's for. This is where we receive it, Sunday morning. And it's a gift, just like the parent to the child. The prophet of God has prepared his his heart and mind all week to say the things that he sees are needs in the church. And he comes out and says them. That's why Paul said, or rather the writer of Hebrews, obey them and be submissive because they're doing it for you. Because they have to give account for you. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Remember what David said about the law. The law of the Lord is, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Friends, we should expect to be warned about the wrath of God. The world would say all of those words, commandment, bad word, right? Judgments, bad word. All of these things. Friends, to the Christian, these are good things because they come from a good and righteous source. And he set it up so we can all be edified together in it. I read these words before to a beloved saint who was confused. And he said, does David disagree with Paul that it's faith that saves and not the law? You know what? I think that's a valid question, don't you? David just exalted the law as the way to God. The commandment is the law of God. Enlightening the eyes. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, he says. Is David in conflict with Paul? Not at all. David could have no such delight in the law of God if he had not been born again. I hope you know David was born again. It's his faith that rejoices here, not his compliance. It's his born-again spirit that soars to such spiritual heights as his song depicts. It's his love of Christ that is on display in that psalm. He speaks of laws and statutes as privileges that the saints enjoy, that all others of the earth know nothing of. He's delighting in his union with Christ, for Christ is righteous, and he's the fulfillment of the law. 
And David knew that a thousand years before Christ was born into the earth. Friends, Christ is the hinge of history. The way to salvation was always by faith. And if you've missed those sermons at the beginning of this series, then go back and hear them. Or just turn to the book of Galatians, where Paul said that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand, and he was justified by believing in it. The way to to salvation was always the same. Christ is the hinge, and those that live before him look forward to his appearing. And those of us who look after him look backwards to his appearing. An actual historical event, a hinge of history that changed everything, but was always the only way of salvation. You offer your prayer requests on Sunday mornings, and most of them are your right as the bride of Christ to receive. The things we ask God for, he's pleased to give us. He's pleased to give us healing. I can't tell you how many great healings have happened in my own life, in many of your lives. And we rejoice in that. And people say, let's praise God this morning for answer to last week's prayer, right? All of those things are ours. It's your privilege before God to voice them at the throne of grace. Friends, what does the unbeliever do when he's in trouble? What does he do when he's dying on his deathbed? Did you ever go to preach to someone dying on their deathbed? I'm going to warn you about something. That's a hard job because there will be a gatekeeper there. There'll be someone sitting by who don't want you to upset him at this crucial hour. It's always the case. It's very satanic. It'll be a beloved old grandmother or wife or, or son or something who's trying to protect his tender spirit at this, at this uh, um you know, delicate time in his life, and he's on his way out of this world without the gospel. There's a gatekeeper there. You have to find your way around that. I don't know what the unbeliever does without God in his life. So we have our prayer requests. We ask for things that God is pleased to give us. But he did give us an order of things. Remember I said disorder is, is sinful? Be orderly. God's an orderly God. He created the world in six days. He got it all ready, and then he put man in there. He didn't float Adam and Eve around in space waiting for grass to grow, right? Very orderly. And then he gave us time. He gave us the sun for the morning and the moon for the, for the, for the evening, and it shall be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. He gave us appointed times of our festivals, right, of all these things. He's a very orderly God. So listen what he says here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Friends, are you wondering why certain things aren't added to you? Maybe you sought them in the wrong order. Maybe you sought the things before you sought the Lord. He said, seek me first. I'm going to give you the things, but I want you to do it in order. It's one thing to ask God for blessings. It's another thing altogether to qualify for blessings. What are you seeking? Peter wrote of it when he said, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. He just wants you to turn it around. Do good as to a faithful creator. For how can a man believe that his liberty in Christ is liberty to sin? Can the saint delight in breaking the law? Can he delight in covetousness? How about bearing false witness? Can he delight to go to God with his adultery as though the new birth brings with it such license? How do you go to God with that? You've got to put things in order in your life. Can the saint be happy 
to berate a neighbor, to dishonor his parents, or to steal, or to live in a state of fornication before our holy God? God forbid. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He's writing to the Ephesians again. But fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And listen to what he says. No fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. That's a strong statement. Why does he say no fornicator, unclean person who is an idolater? Because when you make the object of your sin your goal in life, the thing you're trying to please, maybe the woman you're trying to please, when you make that your goal, she becomes your idol. You've become an idolater, you see. Your sin is the most treasured thing in your life, and you're, and you're guarding it. For you were once darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It all comes back to this understanding again. We who are of faith have been crucified with Christ. We're dead to sin and alive to God. We're joined to Christ by faith in nothing less than a marriage bond, friends, which is a covenant relationship between the believer and his God. So what are the privileges of this new union? You know, we've talked about a lot of the negative things with our union with Christ, the things that are bad for us. Let's talk about some of the positive things. Somebody said to me last week, hey, you didn't quote from Lloyd-Jones this week. Well, I'm going to do it now. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Having looked at some of the consequences of our being united with the Lord Jesus Christ in marriage, we turn now to the privileges of that union. Friends, we have great privileges in our union with Christ. The very nature of the union makes it one of the most exalted comparisons that even this great apostle ever used, he writes. And there's nothing that is so strengthening to faith Nothing so comforting and especially so stimulating to sanctification as to realize this particular truth. Our Lord in the great high priestly prayer recorded in John 17 offers the petition, sanctify them by your truth, thy word is truth. Sanctification is a benefit, friends. Getting right, working toward holiness in Christ is a benefit, it's a privilege of salvation. Salvation comes with truth, friends, but truth comes with holiness. You can't separate these things. You can't be holy apart from truth, and you don't have the truth if you're not living in holiness. Somehow you're blind to some of the truth if you're content and happy to live in sin and guard it. And guard it is something you don't want anyone to take away from you. And so what's the first privilege we share with our new husband? It's so elemental. It's really amazing. We share his name. Well, what bride does not take the name of her husband? Well, a lot of them today. But it's sad that two becoming one flesh is so diminished in our culture today. 
Wives keep their own names. Not so in the kingdom of God. We give up our names and we live under his moniker. We are called Christians, the Christ ones, the followers of Christ, the people of God. We've left our homes and our parents and our old name no longer applies to us. John wrote on Patmos, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Paul wrote of the marriage of the church with Christ. He speaks of sharing in the most intimate spiritual relationship we can think of. He writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Friends, Christ washes the bride. He's perfecting us. That's what this fruit to holiness is. That's what sanctification is. Christ is the husbandman. He's washing the bride, which is his church. He's making us a glorious church. And part of it is being apprised of our own sin and turning away from it. That's the most elemental part. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she should be holy and without blemish. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, this is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. Our intimate relationship to Christ is like a marriage bond. It is like a joining between husband and wife. We are being washed and cleansed for our husband's use, and we are in submission to him. We no longer only share our temporal names, but we share in the name above all names. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that was, is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. We've become joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance. What's his is ours. And we're beginning already to receive it here, to be thankful here. You know, I always tell the church to be careful how we handle the offering of God is part of the worship. You know, there's a great Puritan doctrine called the, the regulative principle, which has to do primarily with worship. There are other regulative principles, but the regulative principle of worship is that we do those things in worship that God designed for us to do. We don't make it up. We don't say, hey, God might like this. Let's do this and see how he likes it. If you, don't, if you think God has to accept it because you uh, offered it to him, you have to talk to Cain. Remember Cain, right? And if you think he has to accept you just as you are, he doesn't. Moses said, I'm going to go forth and see this great sight, and he approaches the burning bush, right? And God said, take your shoes off. You don't come in here dressed like that. I mean, there's always something that he perfects in us as we approach him. Even Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. 
If you think every offering has to be accepted by God, what about Nadab and Abihu, who brought strange fire and were consumed? What about Uzzah, who touched the ark and he wasn't a consecrated priest? He zapped him out of existence. No, we have the regulative principle. We bring those things to God that he told us to approach him with. And one of them is psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, friends. And we rejoice and we sing to God. We pray to God. We break bread. We hear the proclamation from the pulpit, the proclamation of God's word. It goes back to the time of Ezra, where Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, where they rebuilt the wall in the city of Jerusalem, and Ezra mounts the wooden pulpit, it says. And what did he do? He read the word of God for six hours. And they had lost their understanding of the Hebrew language, so they had to send interpreters into the crowd. And people were crying to find out how much God loved them. Even though they were doing all this sinful stuff, they said, at least he told us. They went before God. It was their privilege to find out about their sin and to correct it. And when it comes to the offering, I've always told the men, we don't take a collection. We receive an offering. It's a holy thing. It's the thing God committed to you that you're committing back a part of it to him. I've had people say, well, I'm, I'm too poor to offer anything to God. You're not too poor. You're too unthankful. When you're thankful to God, you make an offering. That's how it works. You know, I came through the Catholic door and I learned a little about reverence. I came through the charismatic door before I got here. I learned a little about making offerings to God. Now, they took it to an extreme extent. I understand that. But they weren't afraid to teach on the tithe. You know what I'm talking about? God bless you with something. And if you're thankful for it, you give back a portion of it for his work in the earth. He could have asked for all of it. That's, again, you go to Malachi, right? God says, you've robbed God. And, and someone says, how have we robbed him? And he says, in tithes and offerings. But prove me now in this. Bring into my storehouse all the tithe and see if I'll not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing where there's not room to contain it. That is not health and wealth gospel. That is gospel. You understand? All of these things are fruit to holiness. It's perfecting our approach to God, which is called worship. And we do these things because he told us to. Friends, I've, I, I rarely talk about tithing and money and giving. And let me say, I, I would never do it if the church was in need. It wouldn't be my way of doing it. Church does not need more money. And I'm not the government trying to take money from poor people to buy Teslas for rich people. Okay? I'm telling us that these are holy parts of worship. One of them is the offering. The other is the sacraments. The other is the prayers. And the fellowship of the saints is part of that. And so we become joint heirs with Christ. We inherit all these things. I've always said there's two rules in Christianity. One is you have to love the word of God. And two is you have to love what God loves. You have to believe what Jesus believes. And you have to love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his bride. So love his bride. We wear his armor into battle, friends. We have our waist girded with truth. The righteousness of Christ is written on our breastplate. Our feet are shod with the gospel. Our faith is an impenetrable shield that repels every dart of the wicked one. And our head is on our head is the helmet of salvation. We are known by our armor that is the Lord's. We finally, in our hand, have a most potent weapon. 
It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And thus clothed, we have our blessed access to God's very presence. And so we pray always with all manner of prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and that utterance would be given to the servants of the Lord. And so we preach, and so we proclaim. Father, let us be those who bear fruit to holiness and perfect our witness before you. And our witness is our love of worship, O Lord. Father, in Jesus' name, you are beloved by these saints. You are our God. We are your, peop- your people. Teach us, Father, to walk as children of light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.